You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and as always, before we get to this week's interview, got to give it up to our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. MailChimp is the premier email service provider choice for entrepreneurs and small businesses. Join more than 7 million people who use MailChimp to design and send 500 million emails every day. MailChimp also integrates with over 800 different services, so I'm pretty sure you can find a way to use it in your business as well. Sign up for a free account at MailChimp.com. You need a new domain for your next project? Check out Hover. Each domain comes with free private domain registration, unlimited domain forwarding, and world-class customer support. Hover also just rolled out this new feature called Hover Connect. And so what Hover Connect does is if you have a website that's on Format, Shopify, Squarespace, or Tumblr, you can easily connect your Hover domain to either of those services automatically for free. And you can disconnect at any time in case you want to move to another platform or something. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use the promo code DOGDAYS and save 10% off your purchase. Creative Market sells graphics, fonts, themes, photos, and a whole lot more, starting at only $2. They give away a selection of free goods every Monday. Of course, today is Monday. And they've got great bundle promotions every month. This month, it's the July Big Bundle, which has 106 items for only $39. Now, these items separately would cost you almost $1,500. So this is a tremendous deal. It's a great way to build up your toolbox if you're a designer. So check out the bundle at creativemarket.com and use our promo code REVISIONPATH and save 20% off your purchase. All right, so here is our Patreon fundraising campaign update. And since last week, man, I have to tell you, we have almost doubled, doubled the monthly fundraising amount. We are up to 12 patrons for a combined total of $102 per month. A tremendous, huge thanks to all of you who have already pledged your support for the show. I mentioned this in an email that I sent last week, you know, we really need your help in order for the show to survive. And that is the God's honest truth. So if you want to become a patron of Revision Path and get access to some really great perks, special giveaways, early access to future episodes, a monthly Google Hangout with me and other Revision Path supporters, head on over to patreon.com forward slash Revision Path and make it happen. Pledge levels start at just $1 a month. a month, that's $12 a year. It's not a lot. That's like less than a movie ticket. So pledge to start at $1 a month. Patreon.com forward slash revision path. If you've gotten value from this show, we really could use your help. So please, please, please pledge. All right, so let's get on with this week's interview. I talked with Harlow Holmes. Harlow is a digital security trainer with the Freedom of the Press Foundation. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, I'm Harlow Holmes. I am a software developer, media scholar, and activist. And I currently work for the Freedom of the Press Foundation as a digital security trainer. Talk to me about what the Freedom of the Press Foundation is and how, I guess, your role works with what they do, what their organization does. Freedom of the Press Foundation is an organization that actually grew out of the EFF, which is the uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation. 
It's a legal entity, primarily a legal advocacy and watchdog group for everything having to do with, you know, the way that we interact online, the way that our governments come to bear on how we interact online, the way that corporations, you know, have a hand in the way that we act online. Some of the Press Foundation split off from the EFF because its founder, Trevor Tim, wanted a space where he can advocate specifically for journalists. This came out of, uh, out of a time when there were whistleblowing cases where journalists were brought before a judge, brought before the attorney general even, and uh, asked to give up their sources because their sources said something that was potentially, you know, in interest of national security. And that mm-hmm. puts journalists in a really, really, really hard position because your integrity, like, you know, the reason why you're employed as a journalist is because you can fulfill that need for confidentiality and safety and trust to the sources that that come to you. So in addition to that, this was also a climate of like less transparency than there should be about our legal processes. And so the Freedom of the Press Foundation set out to make sure that journalists had the tools that they need, both legally, financially, and most importantly, technically, in order to form to the best of their capability as journalists. Yeah, so that's it. What kind of projects are you working on specifically with them? Mm. So, If you're at liberty to talk about yeah, it, Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Everything that we do is 100% open, and that actually, okay. like, in two ways. One, it's open to the, like, you know, the public. We fully encourage, I guess, like, you know, for the public to learn about the organization, to read on what we're doing and how we're doing it. And we keep the lines of communication very open and transparent. And secondly, the software that we develop is open source, which means that the code is freely available online and is well documented enough that if you wanted to try something out for yourself or even just had questions that you wanted answered, you can look it up online very easily and find that. So uh, in terms of projects that we're doing, there's one, well, the flagship project is called Secure Drop, which is a software platform that was started actually by a gentleman who's no longer with us, a gentleman by the name of Aaron Schwartz, who was, you know, this hacker who got into a little bit of trouble with the law. And unfortunately, that was like very, very traumatic for him. And he took his own life. The software was then, you know, kind of taken on by the Freedom of the Press Foundation, where we actively maintain it. And we have been assisting various journalistic press organizations in deploying it in their own newsrooms, in safe situations within their own walls, where they can receive information from sources anonymously, securely, and in an encrypted way. And also maintain like this channel of communication with sources that allows them to continue working with journalists in order to get a story published. So what I do personally is perform triage, basically assist with installations. If, if, you know, the newsroom has a problem with the way that the software is behaving or they suspect something's been tampered with or whatever, we go in and we assist there. And I'm based in New York, so I get to hang out in a lot of newsrooms in D.C. and and in New York City, which is really, really cool. Secondly, and the thing that I'm most involved with on a day-to-day basis has to do with digital security training. 
So that means, aside from the secure job project, that actually means just going into both newsrooms and also universities where, you know, like where people, students are learning the craft of journalism in journalism schools and teaching them basic security tools about, you know, computer usage, about how to create passwords that are secure, about how to encrypt emails, about how to communicate securely over the telephone and things like that. And I feel that that sort of information is really important because in the news, I mean, I'd say at least within the past few years, there's been a lot of talk about data security. Of course, we hear about the NSA and how they might be, or not how they might be, how they are kind of collecting data from citizens and things like that. So with the media being such a powerful entity, the fourth estate, as it's called, because of Mm -hmm. how it can kind of shape politics, how it sort of shapes Mm -hmm. perception, having those kinds of safeguards and things in play are important because of the influence that the media has. Absolutely. We've seen over the past couple of years that these topics that people within the, I guess, the research communities knew were there. We knew a lot of these issues were were out there. Before working at Primo the Press Foundation, I worked with a mobile security group called The Guardian Project. And we built a lot of like software, mostly like R&D stuff, although we did have a couple of really, really like uh, big flagship products. But these were things that we already knew about and were warning people about, but they were in other countries. Like we would go into, I don't know, places in Vietnam or actually or like Tibet or whatever and teach people who are human rights activists about these particular threats. Not necessarily thinking that in our own countries, when we came home, we were under the same threats. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, with the Snowden revelations, that changed a lot. And because it's so deeply tied to the press, to the fourth estate, as you say, this is the perfect place where we can start making change, where we can start to reconcile our need for national security and our need to have devices that we can trust and experiences in communication with people that we trust. So, yeah. I remember this was a few months ago, last week tonight with John Oliver, he did this interview with Edward Snowden. But part of yeah. this this interview that he did was kind of this man on the street mm-hmm. type of uh, interviewing where he was just asking people about, he was asking people about, you know, who is Edward Snowden, things like this, but also asking about like, simple data kind of security things and things that the government can pick up on. And it was so interesting kind of hearing people's perspectives on on what they feel the government kind of should have a right to know and shouldn't have a right to know as it relates to kind of personal data. Now, I know that, you know, the work that you're doing, of course, is with the press, but for people that are listening, for just like the average citizens, what are things, I guess, that they can do in terms of data security or ensuring that their digital information is safe online. I guess that's kind of a good way to put it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, I love that you brought that up. I really, really enjoyed that piece. (laughs) I love that. And so, yeah, that brings up a great point because what people were most concerned with when you got people to care was when you're like, or when Julian Oliver said, or not Julian Oliver, excuse me. John Oliver. John Oliver. Julian Oliver is a really, really great artist friend of mine. Anyway, (laughs) John Oliver says, you know, well, actually, just talk about this as if it were a picture of my junk. And so like, yeah, the naked selfies that like maybe we all have on our phone, keeping it, just knowing that to a computer, there is no difference between a picture of someone's junk 
and a bank statement that you want to keep secret right. or a love note to somebody or your will, last will and testament, like all of your personal data. The content of these things do not matter to computers. They only matter to your adversaries, to your enemies. And unfortunately, because they don't matter to a computer, the same keys, the same, like, you know, digitally speaking, the same keys that would lock up a picture of your junk and your last will and testament. So, you know, no one can like edit it or and, like, you know, take your kids out of the will or something like those same keys are if they're compromised, then that puts us all in jeopardy. And so it's good for people to remember that the reason why it's not okay, you know, for us to learn about our government putting back doors in communication or trying to break encryption or, you know, all of these things that have way too many syllables that no one cares about. Ultimately, what it's about is that if there are, you know, ways of getting around, of breaking these doors, then it's not only the government that can do that. It's other mm -hmm. governments that do not like the United States that can do that. It's other companies that are in competition with one another that want to destroy each other. It's gangs of internet criminals who don't even care about you personally. They're actually just trying to sell that data for as much as they can get out of it on black markets. And these are, once again, because computers don't care what the different adversaries are. That's why you have to make sure that these systems have integrity. Now you're building tools for activists and for journalists. And I know just here mm -hmm. in the U.S. within the past two or three years, we've seen a lot of citizen journalism things kind of crop up yeah. because of incidents that have happened in uh, Sanford, Florida with Trayvon Martin, Absolutely. in Ferguson, Missouri with Mike Brown, and now in Baltimore with Freddie yes. Gray. What types of tools are you finding that these people need the most? Are they sort of arising out of these situations? You're finding like new things that people kind of need help with? Yes. This is a really, really interesting topic because on one hand, we're talking about surveillance. And on the other hand, we're saying that like, yes, we are, I mean, for, I'm quite frankly, the, the black community has always been concerned with surveillance. They, I mean, I think was mm -hmm. it? Oh gosh, I forget who it was, but it was a it was an actor who said, you know, like the day after 9/11 did not change the way that I felt about the security state, or like something to that effect. You know, uh -huh. it wasn't a national security issue. Surveillance has always been an issue, a huge issue in our communities. But now we're starting to see a little bit of a tipping point where we realize that like, yes, okay, surveillance is here, like video cameras exist. But now since we all have like tools in our hands in order to create the type of counter surveillance, I guess, that we need in order to, yeah, to move the needle in our favor, to move the needle in people's favor. So you will see in, you know, coming years, I think in a very, very big way, the way that video and like user generated content comes into play as evidence. And what's cool about that is that we now live in an era where people are a lot more savvy about how that works, both like culturally and technologically speaking. And so it won't just be, you know, police precincts who have the ability to surveil. It will be everybody who has the ability to 
use the data at hand in order to make their case. And I think it's going to be tricky because there's going to be like bumps of tension along the way. But I ultimately, I'm really, really optimistic about where that's going. And, you know, part of the reason that I asked that is because, you know, we were, when we're talking about this sort of surveillance thing that's happening, particularly around like cops and body cameras and yeah. things like that, mm-hmm. even with that, the cameras and things are only as secure as the, you know, the device itself, because the people can turn them on and off. Yeah. So whether you're wearing the camera or not really ends up not making a big deal if someone ends up turning it off. Or putting their hand now, wh- over it or something. Right, like or putting their hand over it, obscuring mm-hmm. it in some kind of way. One of the projects that you worked on, the Guardian project, is ObscuraCam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk to me about that. ObscuraCam is a really, really cool project. What we wanted to do was we wanted to allow people to like physically remove bits of in- visual information from photos, which means you and also video, meaning like you can blur out faces, you can even like redact them with like a big black bar. You can, I think you can even put like a Groucho mask on it or whatever. But what we do is we redacted it in a way that it wasn't necessarily reconstructable. And sometimes, you know, like if you try to do that in Photoshop with certain filters, there are actually like ways to reconstruct an image after it's been messed Mm -hmm. with in Photoshop. And so we wanted to create something that couldn't be undone in that way. But also on the flip side, because the thing about like digital images is like, kind of like a Polaroid photograph where you have the image part of it, but then you have this frame around it that like literally contains, you know, like the goo that the chemicals that's used to create the image. Digital images have what's called metadata, which describes a lot about how the visual part, what we see, comes into existence. So metadata contains a lot of information about people and about the cameras that you're using in order to create stuff and the choices that people make as photographers such as did the person decide to turn the flash on or you know what's the iso and light meter and stuff like that in and of course there are you know latitude and longitude stamps on it in addition to timestamps so we also allow people to wipe metadata from ObscuraCam as well, because you might not want to share that information. And that's information that you don't see, so you're not necessarily thinking about. And so the impetus for something like this is obviously, you know, in, I don't know, a protest scenario, you might want to take a, or yeah, you might want to take a a large photograph, get the information that you need, but redact parts of the information in order to preserve the privacy of people who don't necessarily want to be brought into that situation. The technology in it itself is as political as the person using it. So, for instance, my boss, the, the director of the Informic, or sorry, the ObscuraCam project, he's a parent, and he really, really liked using the app because you know he could take a picture of his kid on the playground, but also redact the pictures of other kids on the playground because if he uploads that to Facebook, what does that mean? in terms of like, you know, this larger data ecosystem that we live in, where people are uploading photos of other people's kids all the time. Let's go back a bit. Let's talk about you in college. Because when I was doing my research, I saw you kind of had a bit of an unconventional sort of path to get to where you are now in technology. You started at Oberlin. Mm -hmm. Tell me, how was your time there? I loved Oberlin. I really, really did. I found my group of freaks there. (laughs) I think we all do. (laughs) 
Yeah, it was great. At Oberlin, I actually, I studied French and comparative literature were my two majors. And I, oh, wow. Yeah. And I also did a lot of technical theater. So that was, uh, I mean, I don't think Oberlin gives out minors, but I guess if you had one, theater would be, would have been mine. And I've always been really, really into theater, specifically, or at least at that point, specifically technical theater. And from there, I also really, really got into, you know, like a multimedia art and like multimedia performance and digital performance and AV. And so that in order to like bring that about and to make the stuff that you wanted, you had to kind of learn a whole bunch of new tools. And all of these tools were like really, really technical. And the more creative you wanted to be, you had to find ways of like, you know, kind of breaking stuff down and hacking it in order to make it make the performance look the way that you wanted to. Mm. So I got into like, I don't know, like probably like everyone at that age, I got into a lot of beat making and that led, (laughs) that was fun. It really was. DJ Harlow. Oh gosh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that led to learning more about like audio processing and that learned, or that led itself to learning more about signal processing, which leads you to learning how to program in certain protocols in order to like make weird sounds. And of course, you know, you get into web programming because everybody needed a web page. And so you're like, all right, fine, I'll do it. And so you learn how to build websites. And then you learn how to protect websites because people start messing with you. And so it was all kind of a very like holistic way of of going about it. And that's not to say that like I definitely did have a strong computer background growing up. As a kid, I and I didn't, once again, it wasn't necessarily something that I noticed because I'm a child of the 80s. So when you had a computer and I did have, I was lucky enough to have a computer in the home, it was like you did have to learn what the command line was in order to get the computer to do stuff. So I wasn't like right. totally in the dark about that stuff. I like to play around on the computer. So like I taught myself a couple of things in basic and like hypercard and all that stuff. So I had always been doing computer stuff from a very, very young age. Actually, So it sounds like it was kind of like a bit of a natural transition. Like you said, it was very holistic. Yeah. And it was, it was something that I never knew that I wanted. It wasn't actually until between grad school and, uh, or college and or undergrad and grad school that I started reading a lot of, I started reading a lot of theory by artists who also, you know, quote unquote, went digital like uh, Jody.org, which is a really, really kind of famous new media art group where they were just making net art. Other groups like the Radical Software Group, once again, making net art, but net art about things like Carnivore, which is before, like decades before, not decades, but like, you know, a good 15 years before Edward Snowden, we also had like the Carnivore revelations, which were equally as damaging to the reputation of, you know, our intelligence community as this one has been. So once again, it's like we always go and we've come full circle. It's it's cyclical. It's always going to be happening. Anyways, I, I digress. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, reading about this and how like code movements and art movements can be one in the same thing. And I really, really dug it. And so I decided that that was going to be what I pursued. And when I got to grad school, I was given the opportunity to continue that professionally, for which I'm really, really grateful. 
Now, this may be a, a lofty question, but what are some of the big problems out there, I guess, as it relates to data and data security that still need solving? We do find every once in a while, actually, like a couple of days ago, big news dropped about a security flaw in encryption that people need to be aware of. And so there's always going to be people on the front lines kind of fighting that and putting pressure on the, the businesses that we work with to do right by us as consumers. There's also a couple of things, like now we're getting into this whole, you know, Internet of Things era, and you know it's coming because everybody's got the watches now and the Fitbits yeah. and the things like that. And so there are two really, really, really huge issues that we're definitely going to be bumping our heads against over the next decade or so, if not more. One has to do with the basic security of that. To be very, very specific, one reason why like, I can foresee problems with the Internet of Things is the fact that the protocols aren't necessarily strong enough to handle encryption. And so that kind of means that like, there will be a time when like, the easiest crime to do would be to walk into somebody's house and reprogram their, like, I don't know, their smoke detector or something in order to commit uh -huh. insurance fraud. So that's going to be a problem. Uh -huh. Another thing has to do with like, what I like to call data sovereignty, which is deciding on a legal basis, but, as, on a legal basis, but also from a technological standpoint, who is going to hold on to the data about our houses and for how long and what are they going to do with that data? And so there needs to be kind of rules that are set in play before we get too far down this Internet of Things path where we know exactly like that. You know, I don't know, for instance, Samsung doesn't have the right to know too much about my television viewing habits because just because they built the television set. Mm hmm. So it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be a while. And also you have to think about healthcare because we don't really think about it too much because it's like, unless you're actually in a hospital and nobody really likes hanging out in hospitals, these are not things that you see. But the ability for hospitals who are so busy and often understaffed or whatever to on top of what are not only like doctors and surgeons and stuff, but like administrators and, and other people who are like a little bit closer to triage, what they deal with every day, and also keeping that data secure is going to be a huge challenge. I mean, that's going to change a lot. I feel like there's some intersection there with, with that healthcare data and like what we're seeing with wearables, yeah. like Apple Watch, Fitbit, etc. Um, I remember when the Apple Watch, when they did the keynote a few months ago, and there were these, oh, what's the thing called with Apple? Health Kit, yeah, I think? Yeah. Where it can, it can measure some things like your pulse mm -hmm. and your heartbeat. And I think they were saying something about, oh, we can present like this information to your doctor and it's secure. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, like, didn't Apple just have like this huge security issue with iCloud where all of these <laughs> yes. celebrity nudes were leaked? And you want to trust them with your medical data yeah. to pass it over to your doctor. And you're a third. I mean, this is not a, a sanctioned, licensed organization. It's a private sector company that has that information. Exactly. Yes. And these are exactly the tensions that we have to be talking about. It's not, I mean, we can't stop this train, you know, like data's here, data's a thing. It's going to be a yeah. thing. 
but you always have to push back when a company that like wants to maintain their market share primarily, that's what they're in it for. They're in it for no other reason, wants to get into, you know, the, the healthcare data brokerage arena. You have to question that. And, you know, like you said, even with like these smart home devices, you know, thermostats and things of that nature, I even think about something as small as like my Chromecast. I mean, yeah, yeah that's something that I can plug into my television and I can stream, you know, information to and from it. But usually with those things, there's always like some little innocuous checkbox that's like, do you agree to send Google statistics about XYZ? And you don't really know what's being sent or when it's being sent. I know that my Chromecast reboots at least once a day. I don't know if that's, if it's like calling back home, (laughs) you know, to the mothership or something. I don't know where, you know, what data is being transferred it's kind of scary. They didn't talk about that in those Tex Avery cartoons with the House of Tomorrow. It didn't seem that that foreboding, I guess. Yeah. Well, there's what are called the unknown knowns and the known unknowns and all of that stuff. And yeah, right. that is definitely something that no one could have foreseen until we got so, here. So how can people who are interested in working with data kind of get started? I know, like you said, the work you're doing with the Freedom of the Press Foundation is sort of open source. And I don't know if other organizations sort of have that same type of policy. But for people that want to get involved, where can they get started? Well, I know, like locally, at least, or at least from the New York perspective, the people in like, you know, the human rights and technology sphere are incredibly open. There are plenty of meetups where sometimes they're like big discussions, town hall discussions about things like healthcare data or, you know, online harassment or whatever. And sometimes they're like hackathons where people get together, brainstorm ideas and try to like prototype something. I would also look into, and this is actually like a, I think a healthy way to engage with this is like, you know, the civic tech space. There's a lot of like what's called open data, you know, open government or open data or whatever workshops and hackathons and like meetups that people can go to where a city will like open up their data set to the community and say, what should we do with this data now that we have it? And I think that that's like a, a really, really like once again, healthy and like optimistic way of getting into this particular space, because you do see that like, you know, for every NSA story, there are like four stories of municipal governments who are doing really awesome things locally with mm-hmm. that same data, with the same privileges that we are, that we fear, you know, the NSA having or whatever. They're doing the same thing, but they're just not being mean about it. Um, so, and they're being open and honest about it. And it's really, really accessible. And they're usually things that kind of take place in city centers and encourage people to go check it out. It's really important for people to make their voices heard, I think. And like in New York City, I think it's, well, I don't know. Yeah, never mind. I don't know where I was going with that. But <laughs> these, these scenes actually do need to be a lot more diverse. Mm-hmm. And not only like do they need to be more diverse, like in terms of, you know, who's sitting at the table coding with everybody else, but they also need to diversify the way that they approach, you know, problem solving. Not everybody who comes down is going to be like an ace hacker. It should be okay for these spaces to welcome people from communities who have ideas and who want to get in touch with, to interface with people who also code in order to make things, these things happen. Because otherwise mm-hmm. you're going to be looking at the same dumb app over and over and over again out of a hackathon that doesn't really change the world. 
Yeah. And I think what we're starting to see now are a lot more of those kind of uh, civic hackathons or hackathons that are using publicly sourced data in order to solve different types of problems, like you said, so you're not just creating some like app that tells you when to go pee when you're watching a movie or something like that. Yeah, exactly. I know here in Atlanta we have, what's it called, Govathon, I think, where it's a civic hackathon. We've got Goody Hack. I think that's another one. And these are, are hackathons where people can come and if they have ideas about things, they can work together to sort of build the types of tools that are used mm-hmm. or can be used really for the community. So speaking of, of what you said about diversity that I think is important is the fact that, you know, there does need to be more diverse representation in these spaces mm-hmm. because it helps to solve those problems that are, are unique to that set of people, if that makes sense. If we're just looking to like Silicon Valley to help fix this, I feel like we're looking in the wrong place because that's such um, an insular enclave of a lot of things, of privilege, of money, of status, Mm -hmm. that that doesn't permeate throughout communities in in this country. And nepotism and inexperience, quite frankly. I think that I mean, like, out of all of, like, the egregiously wrong things about, you know, that that Silicon Valley mindset that you're describing, we forget that, like, so many of these people are so young and they have yeah. absolutely no idea what it's like to, like, mm. care about the neighborhood that you bought land in. Like, they don't understand. Yeah. And if you just keep, like keep these people in that, like, in a closed room with one another where they never actually have to interact with being a citizen, then Silicon Valley (laughs) is going to miss the point. Well, I feel like that's definitely happening now in San Francisco. We're seeing a lot more uprising from citizens and from other civic groups there about that sort of, I don't know, almost like a a tech manifest destiny Mm -hmm. of, of some sort where it's changing so many things in the city that it seems like the, the companies are oblivious to what they're doing because I guess they feel like, you know, on a higher level, they're instituting this change that really, you know, how many more cloud storage solutions do we need? You know what I mean? I mean, I'm not, I'm not picking on a company if anyone's listening. I'm just saying in general, yeah. you know, different variations of the same type of, of problem. You know, we need to solve, we need to have diverse representation at hackathons and companies and things like that because it can help solve, you know, a diverse array of problems. Yeah, absolutely. So who are some of your personal influences? Who kind of really has been like a mentor to you that has gotten you really interested in this? In which regard? Well, I guess we can say in both like technology and sort of this, I guess, civic activism, if there's like an intersection there. Well, I would definitely, definitely, although I don't think he's known outside of our particular sphere, but he's a hero to me. My boss, Nathan Freitas, or my boss at the Guardian Project, Nathan Freitas, who is, he's quite the techno idealist. He did a lot of work with, you know, students who are free Tibet, kind of, yeah, like teaching monks how to use their computers safely and stuff when they knew that they were being, these organizations were being spied on by like the Chinese government and stuff like that. I always thought that it was really, really cool to take this type of activism that you that we've all like heard about, you know, like for generations and generations, but to see that actually like planted in this technological hacker practice was one of the coolest things ever. And I didn't even knew I didn't even know before meeting him that that was a possibility. 
So special thanks to him. My mom actually is one of like the biggest inspirations for me in a couple of ways. Like one, because, you know, uh, she grew up in like the 60s and 70s. And so where, you know, a person with her aptitudes would have been pushed in a direction kind of like mine, she was actually pushed into, you know, kind of like secretarial work. But meanwhile, she's always had that kind of mentality. And she shared that with me, not necessarily, you know, because she was programming, because she wasn't, but she taught me about power, like how to be a power user and how not to be afraid of a machine and just pretend like you own that and crack it. And there you go, like, because it's yours, you own it. And I always really, really loved that about her. And also, it just kind of taught me that because my mom did work from home, she wanted to, so she worked as like, you know, a freelance copywriter or sorry, a copy editor and, you know, proofreader, whatever, so she can work from home. And, you know, back in the 80s or whatever, like the idea of having the, the telecommute job was like absolutely crazy. Like very, very few people did that. And for me, though, actually, what it showed me is that, you know, like, I don't know, like uh, data does belong in the home. Like, forget all this cloud stuff. Well, don't forget the cloud stuff. I mean, the cloud is very, very important. But also just remember that, like, it's a tangible thing that, like, lives, that is part of your life. What are you most excited about with the work that you do? I'm excited about putting these tools into the hands of people who are going to use them well. I'm really, really excited about continuing to work with journalists who have very, very specific needs and also just like, you know, kind of translating or the thing about journalists is that each journalist is different. They're always going to have their own little like workflows and like little quirks and tips for getting the job done. And sometimes it's hilarious how like ingenious these things are. And so you get a lot of ideas from them. And I'm really looking forward to like working that into the technology that I build. Do you have any kind of personal projects that you're working on? Yes, I do. I'm part of a cyber feminist arts collective called Deep Lab. We're international and we're growing with, you know, kind of an open source ethic, which is that we want to inspire women everywhere who have really, really like conflicting ideas about their their privacy and their safety as citizens of the internet to start talking about these things openly and to claim their space digitally. Where do you kind of see yourself in the next, I don't know, let's say about five years or so, 2020? Because I feel like the work that you're doing will definitely keep you working. If you know <laughs> what I mean, like there's always going to be something like you mentioned with these kind of future possible or potential data threats that could happen? Quite frankly, like I do see myself possibly working in user advocacy for data sovereignty. I do. I have been interested. Unfortunately, I know very, very little about the healthcare system, but it is something that intrigues me a lot. And so we'll see where that goes. I might go full on internet of things at some point. We'll see. But it will be about user advocacy. Yeah, the part with healthcare, I'm really just concerned about that because, I mean, I feel like that's just a part that's not really been touched a whole lot with technology. And when I say that, I don't mean in, in the advances like in, in surgery or in ER or things like that, but as it relates to user data and things like right. that. Like I've had 
relatives in the hospital, like in the past, you know, few years and just seeing how antiquated some things still are, even with, you know, a lot of this high tech equipment around, there are still some things which are still kind of super analog and basic. And I'm wondering as technology really sort of creeps into health, that creeps into as it, as it becomes a part of healthcare and as it is related to user data, what that means, how is that going to look? I really don't want Apple handling yeah. medical records. And quite frankly, I mean, that is a class issue that I think Apple is not necessarily looking at right now. I was speaking to a, a friend recently who's, you know, going through elder care right now, actually for her, I think for her, like, great aunt. And she's, you know, her only living relative. So she does a lot of work for her great aunt uh, managing her care. And just, yeah, ran up against that very problem. The systems were super, super antiquated. My friend's great aunt, you know, she lives pretty much below the poverty level. And so there is no way that she's getting an Apple Watch. Yet, just like giving, you know, families, millions of families live this way, giving families like the tools that they need in order to just have like a digital go bag if they have to go to the hospital is something that we all could work on very, very easily, Mm. but instead we're told that it needs to be on an Apple Watch, which makes absolutely no sense. Makes absolutely no sense. A digital go bag. I like that. (laughs) I like that concept. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to somebody that wants to follow in your footsteps, that they want to do what you do? What would you tell them? (laughs) Reach out. Reach out. Yeah. (laughs) Reach out to me, even. I don't know. I guess, like, oh, in terms of, well, first off, definitely, like, there is a saying, if you own it, you pwn it. Don't be afraid to break a thing because you probably won't break it. I mean, unless, you know, you drop it from a 10-story window and it shatters, you're not going to actually break your things. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. like, you know, fiddle around with your computer, poke around with it if that's what you want to do. Go ahead. There are some really, really great, and like now more and more, there are really great resources online, like, uh, you know, Khan Academy for one. I'm sure like, you know, uh, Coursera is another one, but these are like free online education initiatives that like are, you know, to a varying degree, helping people with uh, acquire new skill sets that they didn't think that they could. And that's really, really helpful. If you can go to a meetup, go to a meetup. Those are really, really great places to just make connections. And as you make connections, you the more connections that you have, even if you're not like ready to, you know, dive in and be like the master hacker or whatever, the connections that you have as you grow more will help bring you closer to where that you want to be. Well, Harlow, just to wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm Harlow on Twitter, H-A-R-L-O. And you can please feel free to visit Freedom of the Press Foundation site, which is HTTPS, always remember the S, freedom.press. <laughs> and if you want to learn more about the advocacy done by groups like the Guardian Project and like all of the friends we have out there, visit HTTPS, guardianproject.info. Sounds good. Harlow Holmes, thank you so much thank for taking for the time me. out to, uh, to speak with me. And I mean, a lot of the things that you have brought up, I mean, these are our current concerns, but then these are also 
future concerns that I'm sure we will be, unfortunately, I guess, hearing about in the next few years as technology really starts to creep. Mm-hmm. I keep saying creep. <laughs> what I mean to say is as technology <laughs> becomes a larger part of our everyday lives, like you said, with the Internet of Things and, and, and stuff like that, there are going to be even more, I think, data crises and, and stuff that happens, which is a bad thing, but I guess it's also a good thing because it means that these are places that we can improve and get better exactly. and really make sure that the data that we are collecting that we, we, well, in some cases collecting, in some cases we're giving the data away, just making sure that it is done securely and that it's not going to come back to harm us or anything like that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. It was really, really, really cool to receive your invitation. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Harlow Holmes and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Harlow and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. When it comes to email marketing, MailChimp makes it extremely simple. They have these really great reporting and autoresponder features. They have all these integrations. And you can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. No contracts and no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover, of course, is the best way to buy and manage domain names, and they give you exactly what you need to get the job done. Get yourself a new domain or transfer your current domains to Hover and save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code DOGDAYS at checkout. And lastly, there's Creative Market, which is a marketplace that sells beautiful, ready-to-use design content from thousands of independent creators from around the globe. Head over to creativemarket.com, pick up those six free goods that are available for free every Monday, and if you see something else you like, maybe the July Big Bundle, use our discount code REVISIONPATH and save 20% off your purchase. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro audio by Yellow Speaker. The outro audio, This Is My Tape For You, is courtesy of Jimmy Square. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave a rating and a review. It really helps us get new listeners. I'll even read your review right here on the show. I just checked iTunes. I saw we have 60 reviews. We're at five stars. So please keep it up. Please review, rate, subscribe, all of that. Revision Path is a 318 Media Project. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit our new home over at Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge level started just $1 a month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks again so much for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>